It's Wednesday, October 19th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today for Motley Fool Funds, Bill Barker. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Happy birthday to my sister, Marianne. It is her birthday today. She will listen to this Thursday morning when she goes for her run. So, happy birthday, sis. This right here, this is what you're getting for your birthday. In lieu of a card, in lieu of an actual gift. Every year? You you remember? Uh, I, I would love to say I remember my sister's birthday every year, but I think that would be fact- This is a first, then. <laughs> that would be factually incorrect. What about uh, your other siblings? Uh, I'm, I'm just as good with their birthdays this, as I am with my sister. This is the one time you've remembered any of your siblings' birthdays. Pretty much, yeah, in my adult life. I'm yeah. not great at that stuff. Uh, earnings. Because well, for you, it's, it's all about Thanksgiving. Like some families, yes. it's birthdays, some families, it's Christmas, but your family. Goes crazy at Thanksgiving. We do. I've been told at my sister's house. Yeah, we have a cozy sit-down meal for fifty people, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we, is we, it like a sort of Norman Rockwell version? I, you know, when I look at the Norman Rockwell Thanksgiving uh, painting, um, here's 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 what I'm not seeing in that. Uh, more, more alcohol. Huge yeah. Irish clam. I'm not seeing that in that picture. So it's you know not not really. Uh, holy cow! Do we have a lot of news to get to? We've got earnings. We've got uh, we've got non earnings. We've got a lawsuit that Vivendi is facing down that they better take seriously. And we're going to take a look at Microsoft's relationship with the NFL, which appears to be. Little rocky at the moment. Tenuous. Uh, it's not tenuous. They have a binding contract. It's just a little rocky. But we'll get into that. Let's start with Intel, the big chip maker. Third quarter record profits. They did fifteen point eight billion dollars in sales. And let me say it again: record profits. And yet, the stock down because they guided lower for the fourth quarter by one percent. Is it possible that analysts are just a little out of whack with their expectations? This is the biggest chip maker in the world. And yes. and their guidance for Q4 was and I did the math on this was 1% lower than what analysts were expecting in terms of fourth quarter revenue. Right. And so we're So that so that we're going to sell off the stock. Well, all right. One of the things is they pre-announced this was a, a very good quarter for Intel, uh, but it was already pre-announced that Hey, we're going to have a great quarter. Uh, a lot of companies get into the the fall, and there are a lot of um, investor conferences, and so they want to present their stories, and they already have certain data they want to get out. So they pre-announce how things are going in the quarter, how the quarter is looking, make that public um, so that everybody hears it. That, by the way, thanks to the Motley Fool uh, and Reg FD, for which the Motley Fool got credit. Um, uh, Long time ago, uh, and so all investors get that information before it's disseminated to a smaller group, which is what these investor conferences are. Uh, but that was the story. In, in, ter- in terms of uh, why is the stock reacting this way today? They already gave out basically all the good news about a month ago, and today it's yes, indeed, that quarter very good. Next quarter. Uh, you know, a little bit, think of it a little bit more flat than up. This, as much as any example I can think of, epitomizes the short-term thinking on Wall Street. That when that the I think the difference between average investors like us and 
the institutional investors and the analysts on Wall Street is their time frame is measured in days and weeks as opposed to years. True, but the time frame is always measured in terms of the future. That is, you can you can deliver any anything you want, uh, anything that you've achieved, because uh, you got to deliver as a public company the truth uh, in terms of hey, our last quarter was phenomenal. But the value of any stock is mostly about trying to get an accurate vision of the future, uh, which is a much bigger component of the total value of the stock. So even in this case, and it it is. You know, a, a good uh, test case for this. Very good quarter, but you know, looking ahead, not as exciting as what we just achieved. Everybody's got to ratchet down their expectations of how how much growth there is in the future. Let's move on to Intuitive Surgical. Third quarter profits rose twenty six percent. They are growing their business not just in the U.S. but also in Europe, in China, in South Korea, and yet. The theme continues. Uh, their guidance appears to be what is pushing the stock down about six percent this morning. Yeah, and it is a little bit of a similar story. That is, uh, hey, how did the stock market feel about this company going into today? Well, it was at an all-time high. So you're already people have were as enthusiastic as they've ever been uh, about this company going into. Uh, you know, today's earnings, it's up, had been up 32% for the year. So it's gotten credit for its achievements uh, this quarter. Again, phenomenal growth, well over 20% uh, earnings growth. And in terms of procedures, continuing sort of mid teens um, growth, 14, 15% uh, growth in, in procedures. So everything looks in terms of the business really good. And when you've got this kind of growth behind you, and you've got uh, still sustainable growth, I mean, the, the market's pricing this uh, is rewarding the company in terms of price, not as much today as yesterday. Intuitive Surgical, a great brand name, better than surgical robots, even though that's what they are. They're, it's, they're in the business of surgical robots, but Intuitive Surgical, a better name. Have you, you ever have you ever had a, a procedure involving a robot? Uh, not a surgical one. <laughs> That's, yeah, I was, I was, I was referring to surgical procedures. Yeah, I, I've, I've had the uh, carpet vacuumed by a robot. Okay, you got one of those things in your house? I got one of those things. It was an impulse purchase at Costco, and and under my belief that because we have somewhere between I don't know about thirty or forty pets, um, <laughs> that there's a, a fair amount of fur apparently that comes with the pets. Yeah, and and so maybe. I and others in my family aren't that into vacuuming all the time. I could just turn turn this thing on, uh, but actually, the amount of fur involved is too much for it, so it doesn't it, it doesn't get used all that much anymore. But I, but that's the only robotic procedure that I've ever initiated. Are aren't pets kind of freaked out by the the robot vacuum? Not the lazy ones. Oh. Okay. <laughs> What about you? Any 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 surgical any any surgical uh, procedures that you've endured involving by robots? robots? Not what not yet. I other, don't know other robotic uses going on. No, I don't. No, no, don't have pets. So uh, you know, and and you know, got the the good old fashioned vacuum cleaner that you actually. By the way, vacuum cleaners, we we got to work on getting those things to be a little bit lighter. 
They're just the, the, the standard issue vacuum cleaner, just a little too heavy. Let's work on that, people. You can, you can buy a pretty light one. Uh, you got to pony up. Yeah, I guess that's it. I'm just there's you're only just, there's only not, so much I'm willing you're not, to pay for you're not vacuum willing cleaner. Willing to to uh, pay what they cost. That's Ex- what you're saying. Exactly. Uh, let's move on to Harley Davidson. Uh, this 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 feels like the opposite of the first two stories we've talked about. Third quarter sales in the U.S. fell more than seven percent. Their profits were down, and yet, boom. Shares of Harley Davidson up twelve percent so far this week. Yes, yes, Harley is uh, has announced some cuts uh, to the workforce. About five percent uh, of the workforce is going to uh, lose their jobs between now and the end of the year, and they'll take a one-time charge for that. And then going forward, they'll essentially make as many bikes um, or as as they're able to. Really, they they've got to ratchet down their scale. They're not a growing company at this point, and they have about the same amount of sales this year as they had uh, 10 or 11 years ago. So, you're not even measuring from the very peak right before 2008, I think 2006, had had higher numbers than, than this year is going to have. They've really never gotten back to that the pre-recession levels they had. What they have done is buy back a lot of shares in that time. So, whereas they had about a little over 300 million shares outstanding uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, 2005, 2006. Now, they've got about 180 million. So, you're taking what is a smaller amount of profits, and you're dividing up by fewer shares, and they're keeping their earnings per share basically s- steady with where they were. Uh, had they not bought back those shares, you'd see you know, dwindling earnings per share and uh, you'd, you'd be even more concerned. So they're they're really not staging themselves for growth, not in the near term. Makes a lot of sense because they are they are under a lot of pressure from the foreign competition right now. So if you go back a few years and look at the automakers and look at auto sales in the U.S., one of the things that we saw in the wake of the Great Recession was People holding onto their cars longer and their trucks as well, and so then the narrative in the auto industry started to be about wow. When you look at the average life of a new car, that's really getting extended, and what that led to was a, a belief in you know in the investing community. Wow, you know what? I'm pretty sure people are going to start buying new cars pretty soon because they've they've stretched out. After the recession, they've stretched out how long they're owning their car and truck. And fast forward to what 2015, and we had record sales for the automakers. I'm wondering when it comes to Harley Davidson and just sort of the the motorcycle makers as a group, is is that at all in play here? I I don't I don't have any insight into sort of what is the average li- uh, lifespan. Of a Harley Davidson bike, um, is is that a potential catalyst for this company? That oh well, you know people are holding onto their bikes longer, but it's you know sometime soon they're going to have to buy new ones. Yeah, they don't necessarily buy a new one because the old one has run out because they don't necessarily get the same wear and tear that an automobile gets. Uh, what they do is they buy a new one because they want to trade in for a newer a newer model. Uh, but the there's a I don't know exactly what the lifespan of a Harley is. I mean, they end up being collected. 
there was a time when used Harleys went for more than uh, new Harleys because you could get them uh, and that the waiting list for a new Harley was long enough. And if you wanted something quickly, you'd go in the aftermarket and buy a used one. Uh, and that was sort of the, the golden days for the company. Right now, the, more than anything, their, their strength is their weakness, and that is their association in everybody's mind as an iconic American brand. Uh, the bikes are made here. You've got very, very, very loyal customers. But they can't take advantage of those lower costs to produce in in foreign countries because that will distance themselves from their customers who have come to expect uh, that Harley is going to maintain its American production. And given where the currencies have gone, uh, that has been a real, real pressure on Harley. And the Japanese and German bike makers are uh, – just competing on price, and, and Harley is not willing to cut prices that much uh, because they have a premium brand, and they're not looking to completely compete on price, and so the sales are contracting. In 2013, Microsoft signed a five-year, $400 million marketing deal with the NFL to promote the Microsoft brand, and in particular, Microsoft's the, iPod, the, the Surface tablet. Uh, this is uh, in the news this week uh, because of Bill Belichick, the head coach of the New England Patriots, who appears to be done with the tablet. Um, but I was reminded of, of what happened when they started this relationship, which was that it, it got off to a little bit of a rocky start just because you had the announcers on television referring to the tablets on the sidelines as iPads. And players doing the same thing as well, just sort of reflexively referring to it as an iPad. So uh, Microsoft had to (laughs) sort of have a word with the NFL and with the broadcast network, saying, "No, really, they need to refer to these as you know, we're paying you a lot of money. They need to refer to these as as Surface tablets." Um, Bill Belichick in his weekly press conference. Now he has referenced uh, them as a surface. Yes. And, and now they're not happy. <laughs> they're not happy because they can't win. In his weekly press conference, Belichick was asked, he was asked a question about uh, the headsets. They had, in their most recent game, they'd had a little bit of trouble with the, the headsets and some sort of audio. And he took that opportunity. Like a master politician who is asked one question and use about one topic and uses it as an opportunity to talk about a different topic, Belichick used that as an opportunity to spend five minutes talking about the Microsoft Surface tablet, why he hated it, why he, in his words, he's done with it. He's like, I'm not going to be using these anymore. Um, I, I read his statement, and what stuck out to me was not so much his disdain for this device. But the very odd way the NFL has set up a system with the teams. So it's not it's not that at the beginning of the season, every NFL team's coaching staff and their they all get new Microsoft Surface tablets to do whatever they want with them. They're issued the day of the game. So they show up at the stadium, at least according to Belichick, we show up and a few hours before the game, we get the tablets. And then we have to test them to make sure that they work, and, and I, there's really no time to deflate them um, or, or anything else that the Patriots might want to do to modify them. And you know what? This is their this, odds. this isn't about that. This is <laughs> put put your put your disdain for the Patriots aside. 
uh, as a long-suffering Philadelphia Eagles fan, I understand why you feel that way. But no, um, it's really more my Dolphins fandom that, oh, that created a disdain for um, the Patriots, but, but and envy at this point. But first of all, that's just an odd system. If that is in fact the system, and I have no reason to think otherwise, because I believe everything Belichick. <laughs> um, but also, I, this this is. I'm going to just say this is a, a a pretty bad week for whoever's heading up Microsoft Surface tablet promotions and marketing, because th- this is now, you know, the head coach of uh, a marquee team in the NFL saying, "No, th- it, I'm done with this." Maybe, maybe, and then the only uh, counter argument to that is the degree to which it is true that there is no such thing as bad publicity. That is. How many other times have you heard the surface mentioned at all in the last fill-in-the-blank years? Not very often. Not very often. So it's in the news. Now, not a good headline, but at least people are, we anyway, are talking about it. And I've heard others talking about this. And so maybe some small degree of um, bad publicity is still not entirely bad for Microsoft in reminding people that they have this product which exists and which... They could potentially buy if it, in fact, works. I don't. I don't know. I and, and that's a pretty weak argument on uh, in in defense of whether Microsoft can take anything positive from this. Both the NFL and Microsoft issued statements about, in response to Belichick's press conference. Microsoft statement: We respect Coach Belichick's decision, but stand by the reliability of the Surface. We continue to receive positive feedback on having Surface devices on the sidelines from coaches, players, and team personnel across the league. In the instances where sideline issues are reported in NFL games, we work closely with the NFL to quickly address and resolve. I don't know. I, it'll be interesting to see when this five-year deal is up. So, in what, in 2018, it'll be interesting to see if this deal gets renewed or if Apple decides to take that enormous pile of cash they have and spend it and say, you know what, we, we'd, like to, we'd like to be the tablet of the NFL, and we're going to provide iPads for everyone. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Yep. Uh, Vivendi is being sued by Harry Shearer for $125 million. Harry Shearer, known to fans of The Simpsons as the voice of Gosh, a couple of dozen characters, uh, including Mr. Burns, probably most famously Mr. Burns. Uh, but as we talked about a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, when we referenced the classic film "This Is Spinal Tap," Harry Shearer is one of the creators of "This Is Spinal Tap," and he is suing Vivendi, which owns the rights, um, and it's, he's basically saying, "You haven't been paying us for a couple of decades worth of." Sales and uh, from the story I read online, uh, I'm starting to believe Harry Shearer. By the way, I, I'm. If you just tell me, you don't even have to give me names. If you just tell me, um, musician A is suing uh, record label B for uh, money that the musician says they are owed by the music label, I believe the musician. You know, it doesn't. It doesn't matter who the musician is. I believe them. Ten times out of ten, um, Vivendi reported soundtrack sales for This Is Spinal Tap uh, between 1989 and 2006. Vivendi reported soundtrack sales of 98 dollars, and calculated 
Harry Shearer and the other three creators share of total merchandising income between 1984 and 2006 at $81. I'm sorry. <laughs> Forgive me for being skeptical, but I'm totally backing seems, Harry Shearer on this one. Seems low. That seems really $4 really... a year for merchandise. Yeah. Over that 22 year period and uh, about about seven, six or seven on uh, the soundtrack sales. You're a, a former lawyer, or in a former life, you were a lawyer. Yes. It, we, I, it's a good set of facts. Uh, those being the first two facts that I've seen uh, for Harry Shearer. I remember talking one time with uh, an attorney who was in entertainment law. And he had clients in the publishing business, in television, in movies, in the media. And uh, we were chatting, and I, I, he, he was talking about all these different arenas that he worked in. And I said, what about the music business? Do you, do you have clients in the music business? And I remember he put up his hand, both his hands up, like, you know, stop sign, and just shook his head and just, like... Like, ooh, no, 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 no. And the, I got every indication from him that the music business was just uh, a, a pretty dirty business when it comes to entertainment law. Now, granted, this was 20 years ago. You and I were talking earlier this morning. It seems like it is better for performers now than it was then. But there's a pretty long track record of music labels screwing over musicians. Yeah, and and um, yeah, and in the movie business too. You know, the movie business has sort of legendarily uh, obscene accounting, uh, whereby the artists end up not being able to ever make any any cut uh, of, of the profits right. of a movie because there are no profits of a movie, no matter how successful it seems to be uh, under Hollywood accounting. That's typically the writers. It's. I mean, sometimes it's the actors, but I, I think the the classic recent example is the whoever wrote Forrest Gump, whoever wrote Forrest Gump, which made you know won Academy it Awards, made all the money, and made all the money, and that guy got like I don't know a thousand dollars or something. Maybe it was ten thousand, but it was just same sort of thing where the accounting was such where you're like, oh come on. Yeah. So I I think it's a pretty good set of facts. Uh, I don't know exactly. What the uh, creators of Spinal Tap were entitled to under the contract, but you've got to believe that there were some reasonable sales uh, over that time. More than $98 over a couple of decades? That's their cut, right? Uh, So I'm not not sure that it's arguing that there were a total of $98 of merchandising, but uh, I don't know how their cut was figured by Vivendi. Uh, I I think we're going to learn more about this. God, I hope you get some. I mean, this this seems like something that if you're Vivendi, you you probably settle this I quickly. I think uh, yeah. before everybody else lines up to get a you know check out what they've been getting too, uh, and uh, or maybe you don't settle it because you know everybody else is going to be lining up and you have to defend a, a sort of morally indefensible contract, but a legally good one, possibly. I like to think that Harry Scherer is just leaving voicemail messages at like Vivendi's legal team. You know, he's just calling the front desk at Vivendi and saying, "Oh, just connect me with uh, you know your legal team." And then he's leaving voicemail messages in the voice of different Simpsons characters. Now, have you ever had the the pleasure of interviewing him in any of your or anybody kind of associated with Spinal Tap? 
No, I met Harry Scherer once. I uh, it was just a, v- a very brief encounter. Because um, in, you've had some movie stars in San Diego, the, Kenny Baker. I never interviewed Kenny. Oh, Baker. You know, that's right. No, that was, was that da- Mac. That was that was David and Tom who yeah. interviewed Kenny Baker. Uh, no, I met I met uh, Shearer once. It was just a very the, the briefest of encounters. Uh, but uh, yeah, hope he gets his money. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.